section forty of final report of the advisory committee on human radiation experiments this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. final report of the advisory committee on human radiation experiments case studies chapter seven part five the vanderbilt study in an exceptionally large study at vanderbilt university in the nineteen forties approximately eight hundred and twenty poor pregnant caucasian women were administered tracer doses of radioactive iron vanderbilt worked with the tennessee state department of health and the research was partly funded by the public health service today most women take iron supplements during pregnancy this experiment provided the scientific data needed to determine the nutritional requirements for iron during pregnancy the radio iron portion of the nutrition study directed by dr paul hahn was designed to study iron absorption during pregnancy the women who were anywhere from less than ten weeks to more than thirty-five weeks pregnant were administered a single dose of radioactive iron fe fifty nine during their second prenatal visit before receiving their routine dose of therapeutic iron on their third prenatal visit blood was drawn and tests performed to determine the percentage of iron absorbed by the mother the infant's blood was then examined at birth to determine the percentage of radio iron absorbed by the fetus the doses to the women were estimated in the study article using crude dose estimation methods available at the time to be from two hundred thousand to one million countable counts per minute although the investigators did not estimate doses to the fetuses in the original study dr hahn later estimated fetal doses to be between five and fifteen rad this estimate however has been questioned there is at least some indication that the women neither gave their consent nor were aware they were participating in an experiment vanderbilt's study subjects expressing bitterness at the way they believed they had been treated testified at an advisory committee meeting that the proffered drink called a cocktail by the investigators was offered with no mention of its contents i remember taking a cocktail one woman said simply i don't remember what it was and i was not told what it was although it is not clear what if anything the subjects were told information about the vanderbilt experiment was available to the general public in late nineteen forty six news reports appeared in the nashville press the actual risk to the fetuses in the vanderbilt experiment has long been a matter of study in nineteen sixty three to nineteen sixty four a group of researchers at vanderbilt found no significant differences in malignancy rates between the exposed and non-exposed mothers however they did identify a higher number of malignancies among the exposed offspring four cases in the exposed group acute lymphatic leukemia synovial sarcoma lymphosarcoma and primary liver carcinoma which was discounted as a rare familial form of cancer no cases were found in a control group of similar size and approximately zero point six five cases would have been expected on tennessee state rates compared to which the three observed cases is a marginally significant excess this led the researchers to conclude that the data suggested a causal relationship between the prenatal exposure to fe fifty nine and the cancer 
the investigators also concluded that dr hahn's estimate of fetal exposure was an underestimation of the fetal absorbed dose a nineteen sixty nine study funded by the aec and conducted by one of the investigators from the nineteen sixty three nineteen sixty four study attempted to reconstruct the doses of fe fifty nine to the fetuses in the original vanderbilt study the investigators observed that the one case of leukemia might have been due to radiation damage but that the doses in the other two cases were low therefore the relationship between the radiation exposure and the cancer in those cases might not have been causal however the researchers also noted that due to incomplete data they could not estimate the dose absorbed by the fetus with confidence and that no definitive conclusions could be drawn from this study as to whether these exposures resulted in damage to the fetus the vanderbilt study raises many of the same ethical issues as the experiments reviewed in this chapter like these experiments the vanderbilt study offered no prospect of medical benefit to the pregnant women or their offspring raising the question of the conditions under which it is acceptable to put children at risk for the benefit of others whether before or after birth what could the investigators reasonably have been expected to know about the risks to which they put their subjects did they exercise appropriate caution in exposing fetuses to radiation what were the pregnant women told if anything and was their permission sought who were these women and how were they positioned relative to pregnant women generally the committee did not have the resources to pursue these questions in both research in which children were the subjects and research in which children were exposed as fetuses we did establish that the vanderbilt study was not the only experiment during this period to expose fetuses in research that offered no prospect of medical benefit to them or their mothers while the committee did not conduct an exhaustive review of the scientific literature we did find twenty-seven human radiation studies that included pregnant or nursing women as subjects between nineteen forty four and nineteen seventy four of these studies eight were considered therapeutic and nineteen offered no prospect of benefit to the subject most of the nineteen were tracer experiments these studies were performed in order to examine human physiology during pregnancy or to study the uptake of radioactive substances by fetuses or nursing infants they generally addressed valid scientific questions that could not be investigated in other populations knowledge of fetal exposure to radioiodine for example was relevant to issues such as potential harm to the fetus from maternal uptake of radioiodine in diagnostic tests or to estimate the potential effects of environmental exposure to radioiodine on the human fetus in other studies radioactive iron was administered to better understand the physiology of maternal and fetal intake of iron during pregnancy nasopharyngeal irradiation nasopharyngeal irradiation introduced by s j crow and j w baylor of the otological research laboratory at the johns hopkins university was employed from nineteen twenty four on as a means of shrinking lymphoid tissue at the entrance to the eustachian tubes to treat middle ear obstructions infections and deafness for this treatment intranasal radium applicators 
sealed ampules containing radium salt were inserted at least three insertions per treatment cycle into the nasopharyngeal area for twelve minute periods the therapeutic effect of the treatments resulted from the penetrating radiation emitted from the radium source gamma and beta rays not from the internal deposition of radium itself crow and his colleagues reported that under this treatment the lymphoid tissue around the tubal orifices gradually disappeared marked improvement or complete return of the hearing followed and in many the bluish discoloration of the tympanic membrane also disappeared this method was used for more than a quarter century as a prophylaxis against deafness for relieving children with recurrent adenoid tissue following tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy and for children with chronic ear infections asthmatic children with frequent upper respiratory infections were also often considered for this type of irradiation an average of a hundred and fifty patients a month mostly children were given the treatment at the johns hopkins clinic over a period of several years many children received the treatment more than once as recurrent lymphoid tissue was considered an indication for treatment crow and his colleagues reported that the results following irradiation of the nasopharynx alone were not only as good as but often better than those following removal of tonsils and adenoids in review articles they noted that approximately eighty five per cent of treated patients responded with decreased numbers of infections and or improved hearing when treated at young ages they also concluded that it is effective safe painless inexpensive and has proved particularly valuable for prevention of certain ear sinus and bronchial condition in children although early articles by crow and colleagues indicate that nasopharyngeal radium treatments were accepted as standard procedure for the prevention of childhood deafness these treatments like most standard interventions in medicine had not been subjected to formal scientific evaluation a controlled study was conducted from nineteen forty eight to nineteen fifty three by crow and his colleagues to determine the feasibility of irradiation of the nasopharynx as a method for controlling hearing impairment in large groups of children associated with lymphoid hypoplasia in the nasopharynx to draw conclusions concerning the per capita cost of such an undertaking as a public health measure crow et al wrote in an nih notice of research that the procedure of treatment is not new as an individual measure this is the first adequately controlled experiment of sufficient size for accurate statistical analysis this work was funded by nih for the entire period of study as recorded in an nih grant application the study involved approximately seven thousand children screened for hearing impairment of those screened approximately fifty per cent were selected for further study based on the chosen criteria for hearing loss half of this study group was irradiated with radium while the other half served as a control group crow and colleagues reportedly concluded from this study published in nineteen fifty five that the radium treatments did shrink swelling of lymphoid tissue and improve hearing this type of therapy was ultimately discontinued because of newly available antibiotics and the use of transtympanic drainage tubes as well as awareness of the potential risks of radiation treatment 
in addition to the targeted lymphoid tissue the brain and other tissues in the head and neck region including the paranasal sinuses salivary glands thyroid and parathyroid glands are also exposed to significant doses of radiation during the radium treatments prompting concern that these treated individuals might have been placed at increased risk for radiation-induced cancers at these sites dale p sandler et al in their nineteen eighty two study of the effects of nasopharyngeal irradiation on excess cancer risk for children treated at the johns hopkins clinic found a statistically significant overall excess of malignant neoplasms of the head and neck among exposed subjects based however on only four cases in comparison with zero point five seven expected this excess was accounted for mainly by three brain tumors that occurred in the irradiation subjects one other malignant tumor a cancer of the soft palate was also reported the department of epidemiology at the johns hopkins university has undertaken a further follow-up study of the crow et al cohort of children irradiated there previously studied by sandler et al Verdoin et al., in their 1989 study of cancer mortality risk for those individuals, mostly children, treated by nasopharyngeal irradiation with radium-226 in the Netherlands, reported that the present study has found no excess of cancer mortality at any site associated with radium exposure by the Crow and Baylor therapy. Specifically, the finding of Sandler et al. of an excess of head and neck cancer was not found in this study group. Among the Japanese atomic bomb survivors, no excess of brain tumors was found. However, several studies have noted an increased risk of both benign and malignant brain tumors following therapeutic doses of radiation to the head and neck region during childhood. From the committee's own limited risk analysis of these experiments, we concluded that the brain and surrounding head and neck tissues would be put at highest risk, and estimated the lifetime risk at approximately 4.35 per thousand, and an increased relative risk of 62%. The Hopkins nasopharyngeal study raises different ethical issues than those posed by the other experiments reviewed in this chapter all of which offered no prospect of medical benefit to the children who served as subjects by contrast the nasopharyngeal irradiation experiment was designed to determine whether children at risk for hearing loss would be better off receiving radiation treatments or not receiving such treatments a central issue here was whether it was permissible to withhold this intervention from at-risk children the application of radium was at this point a common but scientifically unproven treatment for children at risk of hearing loss the risks of the treatment were not well characterized if it was really unknown which was better for children receiving radium or no intervention then the medical interests of the children were best served by being subjects in the research because as a consequence they would have a fifty percent chance of receiving the better approach the nasopharyngeal experiment thus belongs to a class of research the committee did not investigate therapeutic research with children end of section forty